I'd like to invite your attention to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Genesis chapter 2, our verses of consideration will be verses 4 through 15. As we continue our sermon series through the book of Genesis, we have reached the end of creation week as God has made all things out of nothing. He has formed and filled a empty and lifeless earth. And he has created man in his own image. And as we saw a couple weeks ago in Genesis 2 verse 1, it says the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. And yet now we're left kind of in this moment of suspense as if what happens next? And certainly we get to that in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3. But before we get there, God provides for us at the hand of Moses a somewhat of a theological commentary on what has happened in the creation of man on day 6. This is not a different account or a different creation story, but rather it is a further explanation of what God has done and how he has made man. In Genesis 1, the focus was on the work of God from heaven, bringing the cosmos into existence by nothing but the power of his word. But as we come now to Genesis 2, we see God forming man and placing him in his role in creation in relation to God. And so as we consider Genesis chapter 2, we want to consider man's role in the Garden of Eden and his relationship before the Lord his God. So if you have found your place in Genesis chapter 2, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 4, the word of the Lord says, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had made it rain, had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedellium and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Everything is for God. As Paul exclaims in joyous exultation in the doxology of Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This should be our primary takeaway from our study through creation week as God brings all things into existence by the word of his power. In six days, God has 
fashioned a stage upon which the story of his redemption of mankind will unfold and the story of his glory will be there for all to see. And on the seventh day, God enters his Sabbath rest as he ascends his sovereign throne to reign over the creation that he has created. Even man, whom God makes in his own image to rule as God's steward over the earth, is ultimately and finally from God and for God. All things are for him. But man is unique and distinct among all the creatures of God because God, as God's image bearer, man was made not just for God and from God to glorify God, but he was made to dwell with God and to know God and to worship God. And so several of our sermons in Genesis have begun with this question of purpose For what did God make man? For what reason does man exist? And really this question of what has God made us for is is the focus of Genesis 2 as well. Because yes, God has made us in his image uh, to bear his image and to glorify his name in creation. He has made us to rule and subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over it. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, he has made us to enter his rest, to enjoy him and to worship him and to rest in him. But the question of the purpose of man continues in this second chapter. And as man is made in the image of God, we see that he is made in a covenant relationship with God. Not only does he glorify God in some distant way, but God has made man to dwell with him and to know him and to enter into personal relationship with him. It becomes clear here in chapter 2 that God has made man in order to enter into covenant relationship with him and to dwell with him personally. And so while in Genesis chapter 1 we saw God in his transcendence, we saw God in his greatness speaking all things into existence by his powerful word, here in Genesis 2 we see God in his eminence in his nearness to his creation as he personally forms man out of the dust of the earth and draws near to him. Now we understand that Genesis 2, the verses we have read, take place in a pre-fall world, a world without sin, a world without death, a world of perfection, a world in which man's dwelling truly is with God as God walks with him in the garden. And yet, as we will continue in Genesis, we'll read in Genesis 3 of a fall. And that fall is said throughout Scripture to bring alienation from God. It's said to bring separation from God. It drives a wedge between us and God. Colossians 1 says it this way. God was pleased to have the fullness of God dwell in him, that is Christ, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. That is who we are as mankind on the other side of the fall, not dwelling with man, not worshiping, excuse me, not dwelling with God, not worshiping God, not enjoying God, but alienating ourselves, distancing our ourselves from God and exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Instead of worshiping the one true God of heaven and dwelling with him and enjoying his presence, we worship idols and turn away from the living God. We suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and in rebellion against his self-revelation of himself. 
And in rebellion against his moral law, we call that which is good evil and that which is evil good. In all of these ways, we have turned away from God. But it is the distance that we find between us and God. It's not because God himself has changed or God has moved. No, we have removed ourselves from God in our iniquity. Because of our covenant head, Adam, and his rebellion and plunging, the plunging of humanity into sin, we find ourselves in this state of alienation from the God that we were made to worship and to dwell with. And so today as we look at Genesis chapter 2, that's the, the very thing that we want to consider is that we were made to dwell with God and we were made to worship God. And the plan of God in Genesis chapter 2 is the plan of God throughout all of Scripture and then the culmination of what even Pastor Chris read in Revelation. The end of all things will be the very purpose of God to dwell again with man and to be worshipped by him. So if you're following along this morning and taking notes, there's two things that I want us to consider from these verses. And the first of which is this. God created man personally and distinctly for relationship with himself. God created man personally and distinctly for relationship with himself. As we look at Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, we read of the first major section division of Genesis. Now we're grateful for the chapter divisions that we find in our copy of God's Word, but those chapter and verse divisions were not original. Moses did not write chapter 1 and then verse 1 says this. Uh, we understand that intuitively. Those were added later to help us understand. But what Moses did do is he divided the book of Genesis up into ten sections, ten major sections. It began with a prologue, introducing God as the creator of heaven and earth, ending there in verse 3 of chapter 2. But now we see here in verse 4 it says, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. That word records, or perhaps your translation might read generations, it marks off the chapter sections of the book of Genesis. But that word doesn't point backward in history, but it points forward in anticipation of what the offspring of this person that it's recording the generations of will do. So, for example, the next time that we see this will be in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. That's not recording what Adam has done already, but it's containing the records of what Adam's uh, offspring will do. Another example is Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, we read, these are the family records of Terah, the father of Abraham. And so it's not going to record the life of Terah, but it's going to record the events of Abraham, his offspring. And so here we have the records of the heavens and the earth. This is the account of what come forth from the creation of the earth. God has brought the cosmos into existence. And now out of that cosmos, we are going to consider its very first historical events in the first man, Adam. That's why I say that Genesis 2 was not a different creation story or a different creation narrative from chapter 1. No, it's telling us now that the cosmos exists, what's going to come forth out of the cosmos. We get this bird's eye view of creation in chapter 1, and here we zoom in to a specific place and to a specific relationship within creation as God forms man from the dust of the earth. And so there's a shift now. 
There's a shift in uh, the, 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 the focus. There's a shift from the cosmos down to the earth. We see that in verse 4 as it says the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. Then it says at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You see the reversed order there. The, the focus now moves from the heavens, so to speak, down to the earth. We also see this shift in the use of the name of God. All throughout Genesis chapter 1, we see the name of God, or Elohim is the name that's used throughout chapter 1. But now in chapter 2, we're going to read of the name Yahweh Elohim, or the Lord God. And this is the first use of God's personal name, the, God, the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. He's Yahweh, the personal God, the creator God, the God who is near to his creation and dwells with man. This emphasizes the covenant creator. The name Elohim Yahweh represents the name of his power in creation and his covenant name with his people. God is not just our creator, but we are in covenant with him. And so Genesis 2 now builds towards the creation of man that God is going to covenant with. We read in verse 6, excuse me, verse 5, No shrubs of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But the mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground." You see, these verses are describing the earth before man was created. Again, it's not a contradictory account, nor is it a secondary account. This description of the earth is the untended condition of the earth before man was created. We read that there was no shrubs or no plants or there was no rain. It doesn't mean that there was no plant life necessarily, but these shrubs and small plants are described here as something that will begin to spring forth as Adam tends the earth. Some commentators have even speculated that these plants and shrubs that are described here are something that will uh, correlate to the thorns and thistles that are described as part of the curse of Genesis 3. But nonetheless, we see that the earth is in a state of anticipating the arrival of man. Man is, and there's no man to work the ground. You see, the missing element here in Genesis chapter 2 is that there was no man to work the ground. The untended creation needed man to rule and subdue it. And so this reinforces what we saw in Genesis chapter 1, that man is the pinnacle of creation. He's the apex of creation. He's God's representative on earth over creation. All of creation is awaiting and anticipating the arrival of man for God to form him out of the dust of the earth. And that's what we see in verse 7. In verse 7 we read, The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So God forms man out of the dust of the ground. He forms him. The imagery that we have here is that of a potter forming the clay. He is shaping and molding man specifically and deliberately. In Genesis chapter 1, we saw God speaking all things into existence by the word of his power. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care for all of his creation, but we see an intentionality with God forming man out of the dust of the ground. He designed him and formed him personally and distinctly. 
Now this shows us first that man is creaturely. He is indeed a creature of God. He is not creator. It is God alone who has life in and of himself. And man, like all living creatures, is made from dust. And yet God personally and distinctly then breathes the breath of life into him. This is not merely an imparting of air, but God is animating and bringing man to life through his spirit. He invigorates him and brings him to life. You see, God is the only self-existent, independent being. He is the only one that has life in and of himself. And yet he imparts his own life to Adam, animating him, bringing him to life. One commentator said it this way, breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as an act of making and self-giving at that. You see, God is imparting life to Adam. He's breathing his own breath by his own spirit. He is invigorating and bringing Adam to life. The imagery here is of God kneeling and carefully forming and molding and shaping Adam out of dust and then moving face to face to breathe life into him. Now, this doesn't mean that God has a body or hands or a mouth or even nostrils or breath in and of itself. But the imagery here is of God doing this in a distinct and personal way. To create a man in relationship to him. Man is created for communion with God. We see this in the personal way that God created man. And we also see this in the name that is used for God here. It's the covenant name of God, the Lord God. We see this repeated over and over and over. In fact, that name, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is only used here except for one other time in all of the Bible. In Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3, he is called the Lord God, uniting his awesome power of his creating work and his personal relationship to us as his creation. Oh, brothers and sisters, lest we be lifted up in pride, may we find humility before our creator in these verses. For he formed us and gave us life and made us in his image. He forms us out of the dust of the earth and to dust we will return. Unless we be lifted up in pride, thinking that we are something, we are reminded here that we are ultimately a creature. We are nothing before God. And yet he still has chosen to enter into that relationship personally with us. We have nothing to boast in. John Calvin said regarding this passage, the body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense. To that end, to the end that no one should exult beyond the measure in his flesh, he must be excessively stupid who does not hear learn humility. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing for us to boast in. We cannot boast in who we are. We cannot boast in what we have. We cannot boast in what we do. We are mere dust fashioned by the hand of God for his pleasure and for his glory. As Jeremiah writes, we ought not let the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast in his strength or the wealthy man boast in his wealth, but the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That we know the Lord our God. Our worth and our value is only in knowing him. Therefore, all image bearers share the same worth and dignity. It's who we are. Image bearers formed from dust and yet enter into a personal relationship with our creator. 
we also see here that we are completely dependent upon our Creator. We're dependent upon Him for life, but we're also dependent upon Him for provision of food and water and air. Everything that God has called good in His created order, He created it to sustain life. We have not been designed to make it on our own. We are completely dependent on the Lord our God. And here is where Genesis 2, 1 through 3 ties in and the conversations that we've been having around the Sabbath. We're finite. God is infinite, but we are finite and creaturely, and we are dependent upon Him, and we must find our rest in Him. May we trust God for all of His provision and in His timing. But the third thing we find here is that we are created to know our God. You see, God is a covenantal God. He relates to his creatures through covenants. And we're going to talk about that more next week. But by virtue of being a creator made in the image of God, we are in covenant relationship with God. The question is, what covenant are we in relation to God with? You see, there's a covenant of works made with Adam. But if you're in the covenant of works, if you're under Adam as your head, then you're condemned. But if you're in relationship to God through Christ Jesus, there is life in the covenant of grace. It is clear that the state of the world in which Adam was created is not the state in which we live, but it is not God who changed. It is us. It is we who have changed. Man was created in a state of original righteousness. Man was created in a perfect world. And he was in intimate fellowship with his creator. And now we're alienated and separated and give ourselves over to the worship of things created rather than creator. And yet God's purposes cannot and would not be thwarted by the rebellion of Adam. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, as the second Adam to redeem a people for himself that he might be reconciled to those who bear his image. Dear friend, God does not only impart natural life by the breath of His Spirit. He imparts spiritual life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. That's why Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam, the last Adam. Adam was a man of dust, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. But Jesus is a man from heaven. And just as we have borne the image of man of, the image of, man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus did what Adam could not and did not, and he imparts spiritual life. Jesus came in the flesh, but he was not merely a living being like Adam. No, he became a life-giving spirit by his death and by his resurrection. Dear friend, do you know God? Do you know him in the way that scripture says that you're supposed to know him? Do you desire to be reconciled to Him? Do you desire to have your sins forgiven and be restored back to the God who made you? You see, the Bible tells us that your problem is that you are dead in your trespasses and sin. You have fallen in your father Adam and you have been separated from God. And the only hope for you is that God gives you new life. The same way that he breathed life into Adam, so he breathes new life by his spirit into those who would call upon his name, who would repent of their sins and would turn to Christ, looking to him as their only hope of salvation. Would you put your trust in him? Would you look to him and find life and life everlasting? 
But dear Christian, this message is for us as well. We were given new life by the Spirit to pursue knowledge of God and a deeper relationship with Him. And it is now from that position in Christ that we are able to pursue true knowledge of God. That we are able to pursue true intimacy with God. We were made to love Him and serve Him and obey Him and worship Him. May we give ourselves over to these things for this is what God has made us for. God created man for relationship with himself personally and distinctly. But there is a second thing that I want us to see from this text this morning. Not only does God make man personally and distinctly for relationship with himself, but secondly, God placed man in the garden to dwell with him and to worship him. You see, it is in the Garden of Eden that Adam lived with and met with his creator. We have this description of the Garden of Eden, which is beautiful. The name Eden itself means to delight. It is the place of delight. It's the Garden of Delight. It's elsewhere called the Garden of God. And it's in the Garden of God, the place of pure delight and joy of God's presence, that Adam dwells with and worship his Creator. And by the provision of God, Adam has everything that he could ever need here in the Garden of Eden. It is a garden planted by God himself. And every tree that is beautiful to look upon is there for Adam. And every tree that is good for food is there for Adam to eat of. Even the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are there. There's much to be said about the tree of life and there's much to be said about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're going to punt that to next week. Otherwise, this sermon would be an hour and a half at least. Okay, So we're going to come back to the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But there's flowing streams, rivers flowing through the garden bringing provision and goodness uh, to the earth and to the garden. There's gold and bdellium and onyx. And now we're not sure what bdellium and onyx really are. Both were evidently quite familiar to the Hebrew people, for they refer, they're referred to several times in the five books of Moses. But it's clear that they were stones of beauty that were important to the people of God, and they're there in the garden in abundance. It's a good garden where everything is good for food and the food was nourishing and there was refreshing waters and streams for Adam to enjoy. And it was a place made by God suitable for man to live in. And so just as God is at work powerfully in creating everything out of nothing, he's at work powerfully in providing this beautiful, lush garden for man to live in. And so the garden that the Lord planted and dwelled with man was a beautiful and good place indeed. Now the question that immediately arises in our minds is this, where was or where is the Garden of Eden? Is it a place that we can go to today? Well, the short answer is no, I don't think that we can go to the Garden of Eden today. And as far as the location goes, there's been numerous theories uh, um, posited regarding the location of the garden. Some have said Turkey or some have said Iraq based on the uh, locations of current day uh, Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And so based on the description, we can ascertain that the garden was likely in the Middle East in the Mesopotamian River. And so we know where two of these rivers are, and we don't know where two of the others are. And so this creates a lot of difficulty regarding the location of the Garden of Eden. But one thing does seem clear is that Moses is writing to the people of Israel and describing places that they would have been familiar with. 
And so it seems that possibly geography has just changed since the time of Moses' writing to the extent that we're no longer able to locate exactly where Moses was describing. The other solution is that Moses is writing about a time that was pre-flood, before God flooded the earth uh, within a global flood and, and judgment. And so the other solution then is that the flood changed the geography, and when Noah and his descendants leave the ark, they named places after pre-flood locations. We, we do this all the time. There are rivers and there are cities that are named in America that are named after places that are in England and other places. And so whether whichever of those two solutions, whether geography has changed now or whether the flood has completely changed geography to the extent that Moses is just referencing uh, places that the people of Israel would have been familiar with that weren't exactly the same places as what is written about here in Genesis 2, the Garden of Eden does not exist today. It's been destroyed and buried by a global flood. But whether we're thinking about the beauty of the garden or whether we're thinking about uh, the uh, location of the garden, I don't want us to miss the purpose of the garden. You see, we read in verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. Now skip down to verse 15. It says there, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And so we see some similarities between those two verses. It's almost as if the description of the Garden of Eden is bookended by its purpose. The Lord God planted a garden, He formed man, and He places him in the garden. And at the end it says He places man in the garden to work it and to keep it, or to work it and to watch over it. And so we don't want to miss the beauty of the garden's description. But even more than that, we don't want to miss the author's point. We see that this is a place in which God is going to dwell with man and be worshipped by him. He places him there to work it and to watch over it. You see, man is formed outside of the garden and he's placed in the garden. This is a huge detail that we often overlook, but it is significant to understanding today's passage regarding the purpose of the Garden of Eden. Because the Garden of Eden is really one of the, it is the first temples of God. It is made there as a sanctuary for Adam to worship and dwell with God, his creator. The Garden of Eden is a temple. Now, you might say that, well, the word temple is not there, or we don't see any structure that might resemble a temple. All we see is rivers and trees and those type things. But I want to show you a few observations that help us to understand that this is the first temple of God, and Adam was meant to worship God there in the garden. And so these aren't original to me. Uh, An author named G.K. Bill gives nine of them, but we're going to consider six of them. The first is this. The rest of the Bible reflects on Eden as a temple. The rest of the Bible reflects on Eden as a temple. Ezekiel 28 is one such example. If you were to go there and read Ezekiel 28, God is passing judgment on the king of Tyre. But in passing judgment on the king of Tyre, he describes the king of Tyre as if he were describing Adam and his fall from the garden. 
You see, he says there in Ezekiel 28, verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. And then he goes on to say, you were on the holy mountain of God. And then he goes on to say, you profaned your sanctuaries by the magnitude of your iniquities. It's clear that Ezekiel is reflecting on Eden as this sanctuary, this holy mountain, this dwelling place of God in which Adam dwelled. The second is this, the temple of the Old Testament is the unique place of God's presence. And the Garden of Eden was also the place of God's unique presence. We read in the Old Testament as the temple is constituted and dedicated to the Lord, the glory of the Lord fills the temple and God's unique presence is there. We read throughout Leviticus all of the hoops that the priests had to jump through to enter into the very presence of God. God's presence is uniquely there in the temple and in the tabernacle in a way that it's not anywhere else. And they experience God's presence there uniquely. Likewise, we read in Genesis chapter 3 that God walks with man and talks with man. God's presence with man is there in a unique way in the Garden of Eden. Third, the tree of life was probably modeled for the lampstand placed just outside the most holy place. If we were to read of all the furniture in the tabernacle and in the temple, there was one piece of furniture, the lampstand, that was made of solid gold and it was designed to look like a tree. It was carved with trees like branches and with flowers and it's made of solid gold and that tree, that, that lampstand most likely represents the tree of life that is there in the presence of God. Number four, God dwells with his people on a mountain. It is significant throughout the Old Testament that God meets with his people on the mountain. He meets with Moses on Mount Sinai. Abraham is called up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. The temple is then built on Mount Moriah, and it's later called and referred to as Mount Zion. And so Eden, likewise, was located on a mountain. First, you have this river that is flowing out of it, meaning that it's the source there. It's flowing from this mountain stream. But Ezekiel 28 also refers to it as a holy mountain of God. Not only that, the temple that Ezekiel prophesies of in Ezekiel 40 through 48 is located on a mountain. And as Pastor Chris just read in our scripture reading in Revelation chapter 22, the new city of Jerusalem comes down out of heaven upon a mountain and he's, uh, that John is taken up on a mountain to view it. So God's dwelling is with his people upon a mountain. Number five, just as a river flows out of Eden, there is an eschatological river that flows from the presence of God in the new creation. You see, just as a river flowed out of Eden in Genesis 2, so a river is supposed to flow out of the end time temple. We read of that in Ezekiel 47 in Revelation 21, uh, 22. From the very throne room of God, there's a river flowing out and giving life to his creation. But sixth, and I, and I think this is the most significant one, so I want to, to camp out here for a minute. God placed Adam in the garden to work it and watch over it as the temple priest. You see these words to work and to watch over uh, often are translated in the Old Testament to serve and to guard. And in fact, they're the same words that are used to describe the functions of the priest 
in the temple and in the tabernacle. Numbers 3, 7, and 8 describe the work of the priest as serving and guarding the temple of God. These are the same words that we find used in Genesis chapter 2. And, and Moses is trying to clue us in onto something. He's saying what the priests do in the temple and in the tabernacle is what Adam was doing in the garden. There's in working and watching over it. He's serving and guarding it. And if we were to go back to Ezekiel 28, we read of Adam being described as wearing this priestly garment, the ephod, and it has onyx and bedellium stones. And these jewels that are listed there are the same ones that are on the ephod of Israel's high priest. Adam was charged by God to protect his temple, to protect his presence on earth. But Adam failed to serve and to guard the temple of God. He fails in his duty. We're going to read in just a few short weeks in Genesis chapter 3 that there is a serpent that infiltrates the garden. There's a serpent that infiltrates and beguiles Adam's wife Eve. And Adam should have immediately evicted the serpent. And instead of exercising dominion and rule, he collapses in weakness. And he himself sins and rebels against God as he was, instead of serving him, as he was designed to do. And so that role of priest, that role of guardian of the temple of God is stripped away from Adam. And it's given to two cherubim. We read at the end of um, in Genesis chapter 3 that this uh, role is given to the cherubim. And they stand guarding the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword. And this is commemorated in the creation of the Ark of the Covenant. There are two golden cherubim attached to fix to the top of the Ark of the Covenant, to watch over and to guard the presence of God in the most holy place. You see, Adam was designed and created to serve and to worship the Creator as a priest. And we've already seen in Genesis chapter 1 that he also functioned in this kingly role under the sovereign reign of God. You see, he says there in Genesis chapter 1, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And so Adam has this role as a priest of the garden and a king ruling over the garden. And his goal is to expand the garden and to expand the presence of God over all the creation. The Garden of Eden does not take up the entire earth at this point, but rather it's something that Adam is supposed to expand as he subdues the wilderness outside of the garden. He is expanding the garden of God so that the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the water covers the sea. Adam is commissioned to expand the garden temple so that the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. But Adam fails in this role. And that role is passed down to Noah and Noah fails. And it's passed down to Abraham and it's passed down to Israel. And man after man after man fails. That's why when we read in the New Testament and is even foreshadowed in the Old Testament, we need a second Adam. We need a new covenant head. And that's why Jesus Christ is described as a second Adam, a man from heaven, come to do what Adam could not do. Adam brought only alienation and separation from God, but Christ brings reconciliation and restoration. Christ succeeds in fulfilling his covenant obligations where Adam failed. Jesus is the 
fullness of the presence of God. He himself being a temple, he is the presence, the epitome of the presence of God on earth. And now, in and through his church, he fills us with his spirit so that we might join him in that work. Through Christ, we know the presence of God by his spirit. And now in Christ, Adam's mission becomes our mission. You see, what Christ came to accomplish was to redeem a people of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation for himself. And he gives a great commission to his church to go forth to the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. In that way, we're subduing the earth and we're joining with Christ as a kingdom of priests to our God to worship him and to serve him and to spread his presence through the earth so that the knowledge of the Lord God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's why Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians 6, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Brothers and sisters, this is a call to holiness. This is a call to purity. This is a call to remove idols from our life, to worship the one true and living God. What we have been given in Christ Jesus is what Adam experienced in the Garden of Eden. And that's what we anticipate even to a greater degree in eternity with him. That's the very presence of God with us. May we not tarnish that by the presence of idols and sin in our life. And may we as a church go forth expanding the kingdom of God so that the knowledge of God's glory and his presence expands and extends to the ends of the earth. We subdue the earth and expand God's unique presence, not by expanding a garden temple, but by expanding the knowledge of Jesus Christ as the fullness of God's presence. That's the commission we've been given. That's the task is to take that good news and to take that blessing of Christ to the nations. But in the meantime, we anticipate something greater. What Christ has begun on earth through his church will come to completion in the new creation. As Pastor Chris read from Revelation 21, we see clearly that the Bible ends in the same way that it began. In fact, it ends in a better way than what it began, for the, the presence of God is there. We read in Revelation 21, verse 3, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. The promise of eternity, the promise of the new creation, the promise of the gospel is that we will dwell with God again. The very purpose for which we were made to worship him and to enjoy him and to serve him. That's where God is taking us in the new creation. And then he says, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb are its temple. There's going to be no limits to the presence of God. There's no, going to be no expansion because under Christ Jesus, the Lamb, the new covenant head, the fullness of God's presence will be on earth with his people. There's no temple there for us to go to a geographical location to worship. But truly, as pro the prophet Habakkuk prophesied, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and his presence will be with us forever. But here's the amazing thing. In verse 27 of Revelation 21, it says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Oh, brothers and sisters, where Adam failed, he allowed the serpent into the garden. 
which brought all of creation and all of humanity into turmoil. There is a promise to us that our new covenant head, Christ Jesus, will succeed where Adam failed. There is no threat of death. There is no threat of sin. There is no threat of a deceiver in the new heavens and the new earth because it is not Adam on the throne. It is Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has redeemed us by the shedding of his blood. And he will protect us for all eternity so that there is no one to deceive us and there is no temptation towards sin. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in that city and his servants will worship him they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. God is going to write his name on us and we will belong to him and we will dwell with him and we will enjoy him and we will worship him forever and ever in his presence. What God purposed in the beginning for Adam and for all of his offspring is realized in the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Such is the hope for the Christian to dwell in the presence of God forever and ever through Christ the Lamb who has brought us new life. God created man to dwell with him and to worship him. And in Christ Jesus, he is bringing that to reality in our lives and in our church. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Oh God, we thank you that your plans and purposes are never thwarted. But that in which Adam failed, we find fully realized in Christ Jesus. The presence of God and nearness to you that was lost through Adam is restored in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we, we sing now in reflecting on your goodness towards us, that we will proclaim the excellencies of Christ throughout eternity, that there will be no temple for us to go and do that, but we will sense and know the fullness of your presence everywhere we go in the new heaven and the new earth. And so, Father, we long for that. We anticipate that. We are eager for that. We pray, God, that you would stir that hope within us and our affections for that day. And in the meantime, Lord, may we carry out the mission that you have given us, that here, even on this earth, that the world will be full of the knowledge of God, that you, they might know your presence through your Son, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.